Welcome to Peter's Podcast, where we talk about real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living. Thanks for joining me. On today's podcast, I have a nice chat with my wife, Wendy Newton, Yogi Raj of Ishta Yoga, polarity therapist. And we talk about a book that I've been reading lately. I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you have any questions, please write me, peterspodcast108 at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. So what else do you do when it's a rainy, windy Sunday afternoon besides talk about Tantra philosophy? We we... sure don't know, because that's what we're doing. (laughs) What a funny, funny, really funny podcast. Yeah. The nature of the universe. So I... um, I know of a handful of books about Tantra, the philosophy and practice that uh, is one of the key elements of the Ishta Yoga that we practice. And one of the primary sort of academic books that we've used is by Georg Feuerstein, who passed away a number of years ago. But it's a very dense book, very tricky to read, but full of insightful um, analysis and history. There's a book by uh, David Frawley that talks about the wisdom goddesses, how Tantra has a very much of a... Relationship. Yeah, relationship to women, uh, like the female. Feminine. There's a great book about... um, Tantra, that's a kind of a story uh, by Daniel Odier, Tantra Quest. And then there are a bunch of tantras that you can find, especially if you scavenge like PDF files on the internet and stuff like that. And you can find the Kular Nelva Tantra, etc. But I was recently reminded in my interview with Serge Cashman at uh, Unit 108 Yoga of somebody I've read a fair amount on the internet um, whose name is Christopher Wallace. And his magnum opus is called Tantra Illuminated, uh, The Philosophy, History, and Practice of a Timeless Tradition. And I never read that book, so I, I picked it up. I wasn't able to find a hard copy, but I was able to get a Kindle copy and um, find it to be really easy reading. So, um, I mean, I guess it's easy reading because (laughs) we've studied Tantra a lot. I don't know that it would be easy reading otherwise. But um, I thought for today's podcast, we might dip into a couple paragraphs of it uh, to provide a kind of maybe an annotated reading. Um, I've I've done that with novels that are complicated in the past, picked up an annotated version, and instead of just reading and wondering what the heck is going on, there's all this kind of interesting insight. And I thought maybe we could um, take this book as the basis of a little bit of chat. 
a little discussion. So not quite a book report because we're only really going to delve into maybe half of a chapter, but the chapter is pretty darn interesting. So what do you say, Wendy? I say let's go. Let's do it, right? Yeah. How do you want to? How do you want to proceed? I'm going to read, read a part of it, and, and then, then gonna, we'll just talk. Yeah. Okay. So the um, the, the beginning of the book, he, he mentions this uh, framework, like a, a way to to think about tantra is to align yourself with its view. And so he describes this view and sort of summarizes it nicely in this paragraph. So I'm going to read um, one little part of a paragraph. And again, this is from Christopher Wallace's Tantra Illuminated, the Philosophy, History, and Practice of a Timeless Tradition uh, by Matamayura Press. Okay, so the view of non-dual Shaiva Tantra, and I should say he uses this word Shaiva, and it means Shiva Shakti. Um, so this infinite consciousness chooses not to remain static, homogeneous, formless nothingness, but rather condenses itself into form, manifesting itself within the field of its own awareness as a vast multiplicity of apparently differentiated subjects and objects, thus initiating a vast dance of self-exploration. Now this act of creation is called a divine play or game in the sense that this activity is fundamentally a free and joyous act of self-expression done entirely for its own sake. The word play is simply used to indicate an activity that has no purpose outside itself, as well as pointing toward the notion that joy and love underlie and motivate the whole process. So that sounds a lot like what we call Leela, mm -hmm. the dance of life. <clears throat> I think that is what he's, he didn't say that word, but that. Yeah, he uses a different word, Krida, hmm. but same idea. Yeah. And it may be a Tibetan word for that same thing. Okay, so, so far so good. Can you go back to the part, uh, there's, there's one part where kind of in the middle, it, it, specifically talks about the the act of manifestation mm -hmm. like how that manifestation is coming about condenses itself into form condenses itself into form earth element yeah i mean you know without getting too without putting a fine point on it at all that that is um the trajectory of manifestation it has to be yeah and from the that etheric just, to the from the etheric to the to the to the condensed. manifest and and you know that is um you know when we're thinking about tantra it it, it the idea that it is <clears throat> considered the same thing the unmanifest and the manifest is hard to understand but it's sort of the real essential nugget for me yeah, you know, because there's so much about from from any number of other of other traditions or traditions that tantra has gone into that um, somewhere along the way start to conceive of non matter and matter as two separate things, 
right? Spirit and matter. Right. And one ends up in some religious con- constructions or constructs to be better than and different than other than. And that's to me like one of the things about Tantra. It's like you're, you kind of got to get that first. Yeah. Cool. It's the same thing. Right. So something that he says next, he gives this uh, sort of, uh, you could call it like a um, quote almost. It's in parentheses. It says, for God so loved herself, we could say, that she gave form to every aspect of her being. The doctrine of play shows us that the tantric view is not evolutionary, that it does not hold that reality will be intrinsically better or more beautiful at some future point, though your capacity to experience its beauty is always evolving. The whole of divine reality is expressed fully in every moment. Rather than, quote, play, unquote, the tantrikas could have used the word art to express this understanding, for that word has connotations of creativity and beauty that are central to their vision of reality. Yes. <clears throat> so there's there's some things in there that I think, you know, he probably gets to a little bit later, but what jumps out at me in that, uh, that aside right away is, is the, that, you know, the t- if you if you assume the tantric, tantric viewpoint that everything all of the manifested reality is divine then you know the idea that you would have a goal to manifest something other than what you're experiencing is doesn't really work yeah and i think and this has been a long area of practice for me um that we have to sort of reframe or redefine what is creativity and what is beauty and what is the goal, quote unquote. You know, it's, you know, the divine play, the divine play of creativity includes birth, life, and death. It It includes loss. It includes grief and destruction and all of those things. And it's really hard from the, embodied perspective to accept that pretty much at all yeah and so i think that all of that is right in there you know he sort of goes right to the heart of it at the beginning yeah and so and and you know it's like i said earlier this is very nicely written and it's like the the things that are coming up for you are what he addresses in the subsequent sentences so let Mm -hmm. me just pick up i'm going to skip a little bit here but he says that this as a play this play of manifest creation in which the divine freely bodies itself forth as the universe is the result of an impulse, a natural creative urge within the divine to express the totality of its self-knowledge in action. So those three words are carefully chosen and, and something we don't talk about so much, we get a little bit focused on shiva and consciousness and knowledge and we don't talk too much about shakti or the actions but what he just identified are these three kinds of shakti mm-hmm. one is the creative urge or intention 
Icha Shakti. Mm-hmm. You could say will. Willpower. Yeah. Not willpower, but well, all the Shaktis are a power. I know, but willpower to me, and this is where I've I've seen it go off a million times. Willpower in our Western world means something very masculine. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, like it means, you know, to persevere. Yeah. in your ego's idea of what needs to happen whereas the power of will is just this this urge to to do something to to create something to have an intent you know that intentional moment yeah is in itself a power yeah so we have that icha shakti and then we have knowledge of the self jnana shakti and then action Kriya Shakti, right? So those three are the primary powers, Shaktis. And then what's interesting is that we gain an interest in understanding. That's our Icha Shakti to understand, which is the Janana Shakti. And we take action then as part of the creation which is the Kriya Shakti. Mm-hmm. And, but see, the thing that really um, kind of brings it all the way back to Tantra for me, you know, with each and every uh, kind of breath or phrase is that those powers, you know, as soon as we, um, I guess it's really a question of practice. How do we, see our power of will and knowledge and creation as in alignment with the the whole right the the evolving of the whole universe like it's really hard to see our own power quote unquote as aligned with right all the power of the universe right. because we just don't think that way right right yeah. And so it's kind of a it's like a it's like a viewpoint or something. It's like a like a starting point that you that you kind of work your way into. Yeah. So let me again yeah. perfect segue into about half a paragraph later. The view states when that divine consciousness contracts into finite embodied loci, locus locuses of awareness out of its own free will, and those finite subjects then identify with the limited and circumscribed cognitions that make up this phase of their existence, instead of identifying with the trans-individual overarching pulsation of pure awareness that is their true nature, they experience what they call suffering. Yes, yes, they do. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Yes. yes. Here you know, <laughs> we must distinguish. Can I just say something? <laughs> sure. I am a locus of self awareness. There you go. Out of its own free will. Out of my own free will. Here we must distinguish suffering from pain. There's nothing wrong with pain, it is both natural and beautiful. Natural in that it is a feedback mechanism by which nature protects us and beautiful when it shows us our aliveness. For example, the intensity of the pain you feel when a loved one passes away is another form of your love for them. Experienced in that way, it becomes a thing of sharp beauty. Suffering, however, is a mental state we could represent with statements like, this sucks, I hate this, 
I wish this wasn't happening. I don't deserve this. Most of what is unpleasant about human existence is not pain, but mind-created suffering. Yeah, so it goes back to acceptance for me. You know, if you accept the circumstances of what is in your actual experience of life right now as, as reality, and you say, I am life expressing, then what are you arguing with? Right. You know what I mean? Just, you know, and, and then it just comes down to the, the patterns that you get into and the, the, the ways that you fall into your loops of suffering. Yeah, or what he's calling in, in uh, a subsequent line, the suffering part is a product of not seeing things as they truly are. And the primary form of this quote-unquote ignorance is our misidentification of ourselves. Yeah. So we're talking avidya yeah. here to use the Sanskrit. Yeah. Avidya and viveka. Mm-hmm. And you know, I really liked, I'm sorry, I'm skipping around a little bit, but I really liked how he defined how we keep ourselves in alignment with that. Because one of the things that is a little bit of a pitfall is to say, okay, so I'm here I am, there's 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 Avidya, I've done my practice and now I'm in Viveka. Right? right? And that's not exactly it's it's really easy to just kind of like fall back into like I'm right or I'm I have the viewpoint I that everybody it. should understand. You know, especially if we've had an experience of kind of like being aligned with the the awareness of universe. So later on, he says something about, um, you know, how do you come to know, how do you approach um, this staying in alignment as a, as a point of practice, right? And that that was really interesting. I think he says, you know, you have to you have to have a teacher. It always goes back to that in tantra. You have to have a teacher, and you have to um, understand that your point of view can always be fallible. I think that he says something like that, and then you have to listen to the texts. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it just kind of points out that there's so many ways that we can go off the track, right? <laughs> and that if we know that as a starting point. Yeah. Then it keeps us more, it, we're more liable to stay on the track. Yes, yeah, stay open yeah. to what's going on. Well, let's put a pin in that part. Okay. We, we'll come back to that okay. explicitly, too. Um, so, in, in describing a little bit more this, uh, this avidya, this, this mm. confusion part, um, he says, this misidentification of ourselves is a kind of forgetting. And he throws in this word God. Um, I, he just needs a, a word for something. Yeah. So we're not talking about a, a guy in the clouds with a beard, but this this unbound divinity um, incarnates as you. And in order to specifically become you, she has to forget the rest of her vast, all-encompassing being. In other words, to fully manifest the particular aspect of herself that you are, she has to temporarily let go of all the other aspects of herself. That's a beautiful way to think yeah. about it. 
Yeah, because you can't have one viewpoint and all viewpoints at the same time. Right, and be in the play. You can't. Yeah. I think that's, you know, for me, there's a sort of a bittersweetness in that, actually. Yeah. And the sweetness of it is the sort of outcome of the practice of Tantra, which he describes as you simply need to see the truth of your own being, that infinite potential exists within you, for you are an expression of the divine, and whatever manifests through you in this life, though not infinite, is to be honored as what you alone can add to the ever-expanding process of God's grand self-exploration. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I know, because, you know... Honoring yourself, that's something we honoring, don't do honoring ever. Honoring <laughs> yourself and honoring all the circumstances that went into making you exactly who you are and not anything else. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, we don't do that. We, we, we almost, you know, run after the thing that we've been told that we need to be or the thing that we hope we are or the thing that will make us win. And... You know, it's just such a, you know, there's this moment when you can recognize the truth of who you are. And I think, you know, for me, it always comes with like a lot of emotional stuff, but I think that's, you know, who I am. Yeah. You know, there's, it's just, there's a lot of emotional um, baggage to have gotten, to have gotten through in one lifetime. Yeah. And that. It literally actually makes me who I am. And when it's not that it's not painful, it's quite painful. But it when, but it also is a very unique and rich soil for learning how to not be in suffering. Yeah. You know? And so I think that that's, you know, it, it that's right there. If I look at the course of my own practice, it has been to let go more and more and more of what I hoped I would be or what I think will gain me any kind of recognition for who I am. Yeah, think you should be. Yeah. And more and more just kind of relatively unapologetically who I am. And, and, and with that, it's, it's kind of given me a lot of, um, I don't know if courage is the right word, but at least sort of fortitude to understand that, you know, I'm not for everybody. I don't even think everybody can understand half of what I say. And that's kind of getting to be finally okay. Like my, I don't have to, I, I, I hope that people understand and I try to make things understandable, but you know, it's a unique facet of how I communicate that came about as through like a very, very intricate winding road of strange circumstances yeah, and adaptations. Yeah, your own unique path. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would say that if there's anything that I offer people in terms of practice, it's to just be really open to what that is for you, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's a little bit of a, sometimes it takes really good boundaries. <laughs> yeah. The, and, 
It's interesting because he proposes that you know this this practice of tantra will give you a, a an understanding of that. You have experience of it, not just intellectual knowledge, but you have experience of it. And he describes it as when you see yourself clearly, there comes a flash of recognition. You are a microcosmic expression of pre precisely the same divine powers that create, maintain, and dissolve this whole universe. And then he goes on to say, you have touched this state, however fleetingly or incompletely, many times in your life. And I think that's really significant. Mm. And you know, when I was writing um, a bio for this book I'm working on with Al, I, I thought back, because Al had a whole story, like an origin story of where he got interested in yoga and meditation. And I had to think back for myself because I've been in it for so long, I've kind of forgot the origins. Mm -hmm. But I remembered it was these kinds of flashes of just feeling awe and you know, move, move to tears kind of feelings. So Yeah, and for me, it was uh, these really early flashes of being aware of being okay. Yeah. You know, it was always like, huh, I'm just here being okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's funny That's awesome. Thing. He calls yeah. it embracing the reality of what is in the now. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's always an awesome moment, and it's not something that you, you know, sort of come by, I think, haphazardly. Right, right. Or maybe you do, I don't know. And then he mentions that the, the practice then becomes integrating that mm -hmm. into your other experience. And uh, so let's, let's pull the pin on what we, we pinned a minute mm -hmm, ago here. Mm -hmm. um, he relies a bit on a um, book called The Essence of the Tantras by uh, Abhinava Gupta. And he quotes him here saying that uh, to do a practice of this integration, you do something what he calls holistic meditative inquiry mm. that leads to experiential knowing of reality. And he says it's based on these three supports, sort of like a stool with three legs. And they're what you mentioned, a sound and careful reflection on your experience. So you have to do it yourself. Yeah. The guidance of a great teacher, Satguru, who is skilled in meditative inquiry and has attained its fruit. And three, the wisdom of the scriptures. And then he, he goes about describing why all three are important. And I, I found this section interesting, as, as you did mm -hmm. too, that this first part that you have to have the direct experience. And he says that it's important because it has to be your understanding. You have to integrate exactly. it. Exactly. But we have this problem that we're not particularly good at concluding things that are sound, that are, i.e., that are true, because we're constantly coming we, out of our own loops, et cetera. Exactly. That's why we need each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
The problem, here I'm quoting again, the problem of direct experience as a means of knowledge is that people often draw conclusions based on their experience that are logically invalid. They don't realize they are doing so because their assumptions and the process by which they draw their conclusions usually go unexamined. Even more basically, they are often unable to separate their experience from their interpretation. Doesn't that ring true? Totally. That you're, it's just echo that, you know, it's hard to separate your experience from your interpretation because they're so merged, you know, I mean, it's kind of like the, the, the part of you that thinks in holistic precognitive sort of pictures and is able to tap into like all the viewpoints is in opposition or in hopefully in collaboration with the part of you that is discursive and puts things into time frames and chops things up into like yours and mine and all of those kinds of frameworks. And, you know, I think what is being said here is that those things go hand in hand. You can't, like, if you have a mind and a body, you can't get out of having a mind and a body and it's not advisable to try. That's, you know, on the other end of dysfunction. But you also have to let go of it long enough to be able to experience the experience and know what that was. And that somehow, you know, with when we make up the stories about when we describe the thing that happened, we're, we Im- instantly get involved in our own perspective. Right. And if you can just ride that, that little space between those, right, you can stay at least a little bit in the, in that, as in that channel of awareness that being in the, in that more holistic mind frame allows that med- I would say meditative. Yeah. I would use that word. And and something you just said, I, I just want to clarify too that you said when we tell the story, it makes it sound a little bit like we're sharing with someone else, but we're telling ourselves stories yes. all the time. Yep. And that becomes the the framework yep. of our own understanding. You know, when um when I was writing the book with Al, the Tantra of the Yoga Sutras with Al and uh, he has these metaphors that he uses to describe what it feels like to be in samadhi or the state of absorption, contemplative, holistic. I think what that guy is calling the contemplative holistic right, meditative inquiry. Holistic inquiry. Um, that, you know, the point is not to necessarily not see the movie or not be in the movie theater or not, you know, uh, respond to the movie, which means being in that Leela, that play, but to at every moment understand that it, that the, that the projection is happening. Right. Right. Because once, you know, if you, you know, I think that's sort of as, as good in that, in the, in our discursive world, it's as good as you can get to sort of go, here's my position here's my point of view, here's the movie I think I'm in, what's going on for you? You know, and that's that's kind of, to me, real presence and real relatedness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you can turn your attention away from the movie and see the projector and see the frames and see the pixels, and then you can turn your attention back to the movie, you realize 
any moment is an opportunity for choice and change and potential. And that's, I think, a place of realization. Mm -hmm. But the problem is there's always a place where it's, it's scary or it's not okay or you're just going to get sucked in. And so uh, it's kind of this ever-evolving practice right. to know yourself and to know your Right, and to let it into Your embodiment, yeah. You know, like you say, when you encounter a space that's challenging or difficult or confusing and you're tempted back, you, you generally have a reaction that's along the lines of fear. Exactly. And that's always like a, a place of darkness. There's not enough light to see what's really going on, and so you're concerned, and fear takes all the way from a little anxiety to terrified. And uh, especially if there's a trauma involved with something mm -hmm. around it. And so those places are going to require this kind of investigation and um, integration before you can encounter them and see them as part of, oh, this is just the movie and not just be glued to the screen going, ah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Imagine a paradise of palm trees, rice paddies, beautiful people, beautiful colors, wonderful weather in the middle of February, and yoga to boot. That's the retreat in Bali, February 2020, led by Aino Siren and myself with special guest Wendy Newton, February 8 through 15. Check out the show notes for a link or see peterfurco.com for more information. Can't wait to go. Can't wait to see you there. Bali. So let me, let me continue on a little here. Um, on the path of inquiry into truth, we never devalue or dispense with reflection on our personal experience. So even though we don't necessarily make clear judgments about what's going on, we still have to keep ourselves and our own understanding as primary. It's one of those three legs of the stool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important. Because one of the things that happens in our world all the time is that somebody comes along and says, you know, you're not qualified to judge this. Mm -hmm. I am. Yeah. And then we go, oh, thank God, somebody's going to make a decision for yeah. us. And we give our power right away. Right. So, although it's sort of sometimes counterintuitive and hard, and also involves kind of not taking all the power. Right, you have to say, like, you kind of have to give Caesar what Caesar is due. Like, mm -hmm. my perspective is valid as far as it goes, and I need to check in with all the other perspectives. Right. Yeah. So even though we're not going to devalue that personal experience, I'm going to continue reading. Mm -hmm. Yet, since we cannot be 100% certain about the conclusions we draw 
or how universally applicable they are, we soften our iron grip on our apparently safe and comfortable sense of certainty and seek to corroborate it with trusted others, the teacher and the sacred scripture. And so it's just repeating yeah. what you just said. Doesn't that, in our contemporary world, doesn't that trusted other, it, for me anyway, it draws to my awareness, not this sense of the guru being above, but those whom we have chosen as trusted others, whether yeah. they're your actual teacher or whether they're your spouse or whether, you know, I'm always thinking, what are you got to, what are you here to teach me? You know, even if it's a challenging relationship. Mm -hmm. So I think of that, you know, it's like if there's something that happens when over a period of time, a longer period of time than just, you know, a weekend training or something like that, somebody really shows up in a way that I, I can learn to, that I can learn to trust. I can sort of uh, see the, the, the benefit right. of interacting with them and how it clarifies my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. We're all a little bit teachers for each other. Well, all, uh, yeah. So um, we can choose to be that. for each Yeah. Other. And what, what he's talking about here is a little bit more of a formal learning or formal arrangement. I get that. I get that. And he says, uh, he follows it up because, you know, I, I thought you were going to go to a different place when you were saying that. And to me, what I hear more often is that when people are confused and they think they need to somehow validate what they're wondering about or get more answers to what they're wondering about, their go-to is Google. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's in our, our world big and time. And Google becomes not a trusted other. Well, it, it is a trusted other. People trust it like it's so the didn't trusted earn it. other. Google did not earn your trust. Yeah. And so it's a source of information. So maybe it's somewhere between a uh, questionable other and a scripture, depending you on know, what's being I, quoted. You know, it just occurs to me that in our current predicament, the, the idea that we would trust, I, I kind of see it in like rabbit ears, quotes, information above tradition, testimony, tried and true perspective is actually what kind of has gotten us here. And I find it to be the, the, the single most difficult thing for students is that uh, there's no frame of reference even for sometimes how I present material. Like, this is not information that I'm here to teach you, but we're here to do a form of yoga. Right. And however you experience this is yours, and I'm here as a, as like the only thing that I have for you in this work is that I've done my self inquiry and I've studied that quote unquote scripture, and I have teacher. And yeah. I constantly go back to my trusted others to verify and to sort of fine tune where I think I am. Yeah. And those things to me really are that tripod, you yeah. know, and it's been that way, I think probably for millennia. Yeah. You know, he, he, he elaborates a little bit on that last two bits. So let me, in a kind of succinct way. So let mm -hmm. me, let me carry on here. Um, 
because it it supports what you're saying very much. So we first of all start off by saying we're not devaluing the personal experience. That's the one leg of the stool. But to some Westerners, having the spiritual teacher and scripture as the other two legs of the tripod seems redundant. Mm, that's interesting. And then he calls it, though, a system of checks and balances, mm-hmm. right? Um, scripture exists as a representative document of the whole community, because even if a given scripture was written by just one person, it is transmitted, copied and recopied for centuries, if and only if some of its contents are effective for a wider group of people. Mm-hmm. So the proof of the pudding is in the taste. Did it exactly. work? Right. So if it works lo- well enough, it continues to it. get descript- and distributed. And also it evolves based on how people are receiving the, the wisdom. Yeah. You know? And so let me, let me say yeah. the other leg now. So as a document of collective wisdom perpetuated by a community, scripture protects you from an aberrant teacher who preaches his own idiosyncratic experience as if it were universal. And I think this is something you talk about so much, that people teach their own process of getting something instead of allowing for the process of of their own. Because the student or the person who's in the student role is needs to be one of the, it explains it exactly because one of the three legs of this is that the receiver needs to be allowed to do their own reception. Yeah. And so if you did your own receiving of the wisdom and then you tell people what it is for them, you've just taken away one of the legs of their tripod. Right. Right. And it's and I don't think so we then know they fall we're down doing, or they say they then revere they give you their the power. teacher right exactly and I think you know we do that a lot because we live in a very commercial world and it's much easier to say here's what I'm going to do for you here's how it's gonna here's how I'm going to do the thing that you need for you right and this is what you have to pay me on the regular in order to get that yeah and you know gosh we all need to make a living but in that arena it's it becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. And I see people have well, it all sorts of has to be clear what it's for. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it has to be clear what it's for. And I think in our situation, you know, it takes meticulous boundary making. Like, I'm not telling you how to receive this. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, you know, people, when I, when I take my own experience out of it, people are always wanting, like, to know what my story is. Mm-hmm. And I... You know, I, I always have to kind of say, well, this is just my story. Mm-hmm. This is how I got there. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting process. You know, it's, yeah. it's, you, you know, it's like teaching art. Yeah. You, I can't tell you what kind of an artist you are. I can give you the materials and the tools and show you what's possible. Right. You know, and I can really, you know, validate it when you make something and show you where I think it's gone off. But I can't tell you are you you know a portraitist or a Mm -hmm. landscape artist right and that that gets really i think tricky yeah so let me do the third leg here of our stool so this the the scripture protects you from an aberrant teacher on the other hand though scriptures are presumed to have been written by an awakened master 
though, sorry, though scriptures are presumed to have been written by an awakened master, a healthy skepticism is maintained by requiring their wisdom to be corroborated by the other two sources of knowledge. So the teacher helps you interpret what's in the writings, but also your own experience helps you validate whether that's true or not Mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So then the three things work together as a way of creating sound knowledge, sound practice. Sound practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely, first of all, the word scripture doesn't completely work for me here yeah, because well, it has so, so many connotations. Yeah. Um, but we're sort of understanding that it's the ancient yoga writings. Sutras, the yoga sutras, you know. Yes, but all all of them, all of them. Yeah. You know, and the the place that I find really great, like deep sustenance is this, my imagination around all the people that have gone before and interpreted and received that information and that wisdom. And, you know, to me, that's where those time boundaries just kind of lose their power over us. You know, I, I know that those people in ancient antiquity were very different than us, but in some ways they were just the same. Right. And so I like to imagine that we have that capacity. Right to just understand the truth and the reality of what is. Right. And, you know, going, and to take steps to walk forward in that way, it's very, it's actually very humbling, Mm -hmm. you know, and that place of the ego and the, the higher self have to, they have to do that dance within you in order to let you do the, the growing. Right. Yeah. Right. And that he mentions early on in the book that there's always been this sense of time in Indian philosophy of being cyclical rather yes. than linear. Yeah. So the the fact that previous generations were engaged in the same activity makes sense. We're we're all learning the same relationship with life mm-hmm. yeah just from a di- slightly different perspective based on something different that we're manifesting as this part of the evolution of yeah. the goddess yeah i mean ultimately it really does all go back to that to some pretty wild awarenesses of time and cycle and you know, if if we do something in the present moment that is informed, I would say it that way. You know, then it it has ramifications for the past as well as the future, because time doesn't actually exist. I mean, that's that's so hard for us to understand. Yeah. But I I think that you know, if we live as if that were true to a certain degree, then there are these moments where it dawns on us that it's actually true. And it's a felt sense of being yeah, true. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like an unwinding of of the past and 
you know, how we it, experience I, it. I, I feel like, you know, there's there's a book in me about this because of the the tr- the place that um the the, the wounds are, gen- are all of my wounding is very generational. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's kind of because of where I landed in my own lineage, I think that that's been really a big learning for me and I would say it's probably like the most important one. Yeah. Um to see it as cyclical. Yeah. And to understand that, you know, I have a place in the cycle. Yeah. And that my place in the cycle is to understand that it's cyclical. Yeah. You know. Well, Christopher Wallace says so pretty explicitly, and uh, I, I left out this particular sentence, but back in the beginning when we were talking about those three shaktis, the Icha shakti, that will, the Janana shakti, self-knowledge, and Kriya, that action, that that is the nature of the universe, the nature of manifestation. And he says that, Let's see. That this process unfolds in each instant on all scales. Yeah. 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 And so then, as we are doing that as our practice, and we're using this system of corroboration to validate the knowledge that we're using to help craft the practice that's letting us integrate this felt sense into what's going on, the process becomes complete when these seeds come to life as living, vibrating wisdom within us. That is, in Tantra, we seek not just to know wisdom, but to fully embody it. And at that yeah. point, the evidence is there that you no longer uh, need more because the words become irrelevant. You em- have embodied the words. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do, I really, that I had forgotten about that part and I, I really, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, I really resonate with that because it doesn't necessarily matter to me what words we choose to say something. Like, I don't, I have never seen that there, you know, like I feel like I landed upon the words that were used in this book. And those are good words. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it took me a long time to get them. But at the same time, I honestly think that you could come to it again fresh and write a whole second book that essentially says the same thing but understood in a different time and place and it would be the same right and so it's it is an for me it really is an embodied journey and that's that's kind of you know like an, a hard one position actually for me because when i was young i was so focused on words as like almost like a life raft in a sea of confusion and and really confusion. Yeah. That instability. Instability. You know, I had to sort of create structures based on words. 
But I, I seem to have really, although I use words in my actual practice, I don't. That's the thing. I, I you know, I, I can see, ex- I can see where, where we don't need them, and the, and the, and the awareness that dawns in the people. Like I'm much more focused on that moment of integration, right? You always see it as a breath or a new thought coming up or something where people kind of go, aha. And that's not associated with a way of saying it. That comes right after, but not in that right, moment. Right. And that's that's really definitely been, a, you know, to me that is my my tantric journey. Yeah, I think it's a gift to the way he says that you have experienced it in your yeah, life many yeah. times because yeah. it does point out that yeah, 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 we. We have those integrated experiences, yeah. and do, we do maybe talk about them afterwards, or we try to find a roomy quote that matches the feeling yes. or to invoke the feeling. But exactly. it's not about that. It's, exactly, it's that moment where we're simply content. That's you why know, I like the inner smile meditation yeah. so much. It asks for the feeling yeah. that you have when things are okay. Exactly. You know, so I almost see it like you have to you have to set up the conditions. Like if you're going to have an intention and uh, uh, a knowledge and a, an action around something, especially having to do with practice, then you you kind of have to set up the array. You have to set up the conditions, and then each time it's an alive moment. You're not controlling it if you sit too hard on what your intention was for other people and you insist that they have the experience that you intended for them to have then you know you've just i feel like you've just squeezed the life out of it yeah and you know that i think that relates to all you know i'm talking about it as far as teaching goes but you know if you think about something you want in life or somewhere you think you're going in life, you know, we always have those places of attachment. We want something to happen. In a certain way. In a certain way. And Tantra really does teach us a different kind of way that doesn't take away the validity and the importance of intention, but actually opens it up and aligns us with the possibilities that we couldn't possibly see. Right. You know, as well as our intention and our knowledge and our and our actions. Right. So it's really, it's really, I think it's very potent and powerful. I'm glad to have found it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, thank you for going through this little segment with me. I think it was fun. Yeah. And uh, got us through part of this rainy, gloomy day. Very rainy and gloomy. Yeah. So. But all, all the same, a lovely day. Yes. Ariom Tatsat. Ariom Tatsat. Okay. Namaste. Namaste. If you're ready to take a teacher training, I'll be teaching in a few of them this coming year. One at Ishta Yoga in New York City, and one in Finland this summer. You can get all the details at ishtayoga.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for you so you can get right to the right page. That's today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening to Peter's podcast. I hope that you find real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living through your practice. Please support me on Patreon. Rate the podcast. Namaste.
If you're ready to take a 300-hour teacher training, I'm going to be teaching in two of them, one at Ishta Yoga in New York City and one in 